0: Uh, We do find that patients will come in and they have an idea of what they want on their funeral, but they have no idea how they're going to get
1: from being alive to that point. We've had a complete revolution in how people give birth, from a very medicalised, interventionist model to one where the mother is much more in charge, the family can be there. And still most births happen in hospital, but the atmosphere around them has completely changed. I believe we could do the same for death. Welcome to another
2: episode of Think Business Futures. I'm Nicole Sutton, Accounting Lecturer at the UTS Business School.
3: And I'm David Brown, I'm Associate Dean External Engagement.
2: And on this episode, we're looking at the end of life care. And to help us have this conversation is distinguished Professor Jane Hall from the Centre of Health Economics and Evaluation at the University of Technology, Sydney. And Jane's leading a project which is funded by the National Health and Medical Research Council. Now today's episode builds off an earlier chat we had with Jane's colleague, Richard Diabru Lorenzo, about costing life. You know, without understanding and without being able to evaluate whether something works and is represents value for money, then as a society we wouldn't necessarily put dollars towards it and we'd end up in a situation like they have over the Pacific where you have large trenches of the population who can't access care. And that's not a society I want to live in. If you haven't had a chat to listen to it, we highly recommend you go back to listen to it first. But on to you, Jane. Welcome.
3: So before we get into your research, can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in health economics, and in particular end-of-life care?
1: I got into economics because I studied economics at university. I hadn't done it at school, and I picked economics because I wanted to do something different. Um, And... From there, it was, well, what sort of career path is open? And it was totally accidentally that uh, I got some work working in hospitals, looking at how hospitals were organised and managed. And I just found them the most fascinating organisations. So all that standard economics we do about you know business economics and making a profit, it just doesn't count when you're trying to Uh, deal with people who are sick so your bottom line has to be completely different and that really started the whole journey for me. Can you tell me a little bit more about why you find hospitals so interesting? Because they're very complex organisations. You've got uh, the medical staff who are very oriented to their own professional areas. In many ways you could see them as a law unto themselves. You've got that doctor-patient relationship that is very important therapeutically as well as organizationally. You've got the nursing and other allied medical staff who all have separate professional disciplinary areas. Mm. Um, you've got this strong this strong, strong culture of ethics in how you treat people and yet they're multi million dollar organizations and people are trying to run them efficiently and effectively. Now speaking of like the dollars and cents Uh,
2: Today we're dealing with a topic which, as a society, we prefer not to talk about. I mean, we're going to be talking about death and end of life. So to ease in, let's start with those economics, with those dollars and cents. Can you tell us what we know about the cost
1: of end of life care? We spend about 10% of our national income on our healthcare system. And an awful lot of that is spent on people at the end of life. Now, there is an end of life that is inevitable. I think there's a big difference between people dying at young ages and people dying in the fullness of time in their 80s and their 90s and now their 100s. Uh, death for all the advances we've made in medical technology is still inevitable in the end. What? It's it's going to happen it's, it's, it's inevitable it's, yes. inevitable. it's <laughs> yes. going to happen yeah it doesn't happen anymore at young ages really gone out of fashion dying young um, people are increasingly dying at those older ages and often they're not dying quickly they're dying after a period of prolonged ill health of, of chronic diseases and that is very costly but I think the interest in this is not because it's expensive it's are we spending this money in the best way to support people through this part of their lives?
3: So you said that we spend about 10% of our national income on health care. So what percentage of that sits at this end-of-life period that you're interested in?
1: I don't have an exact figure for that because it's not easy to pull out of the national statistics. But we know that the averages for people at the end of life um, are somewhere at sort of seventy to $80,000 over a year, whereas for people at younger ages, it's two or $3,000 a year. So there's a big difference.
3: Presumably that time at the end of your life, you could spend a lot more of your total health Budget, if you like, as an accountant, then you perhaps would have spent in the rest of your life in your healthcare.
1: Yes, yes, you could. And if we're not spending that money to make people's quality of life at that stage better, why are we doing it? You referred in the introduction to the interview you did with Richard and he's done a lot of work around that measuring and valuing different aspects of quality of life and I've worked in that area too. But this is interesting because do the same weight, do the same things, mean have the same value when you get to this end-of-life stage? And we suspect they're not. I think once people accept an inevitability about death, then different things are important. Pain control is clearly important. We have some evidence that people don't want to make the same trade-offs. They don't, they're not prepared to put up with the side effects of treatment. Uh, we think that dignity, being able to still relate to family and friends is very, very important. So, on one hand, we
2: have these more qualitative characteristics of the things that people are, are really important to them. And on the other hand, as we just spoke about before, we have these dollar figures about the amount of money that is being spent on healthcare. Now, somewhere in between, we've got some health economists like yourself and Richard... What sort of work do health economists do to try and quantify or provide some sense of value around end-of-life
1: care and end-of-life choices? So the sort of work we're going to do is really explore what's important to people and what sort of trade-offs they're prepared to make. One of the issues when we do talk about end-of-life care is very much about do you want to die at home or do you want to die in hospital? And we feel that's very simplistic because... It's not just about the point of death, it's about the time that leads up to it and how you spend that time, whether you have very interventionist treatments, whether you want to be hooked up to drips and to machines that go beep in the night, or whether you want a more gentle um, and more home-like atmosphere, which may well be able to be provided in institutional settings as well as at home. This kind
3: of reminds me of a really great book that Nicole got me to read, uh, written by Atul Gwande, is that how you pronounce Mm. it? It's called
2: Being Mortal. Being Mortal.
3: And he really opened up my thinking in relation to this point, the incentive that medical practitioners have of extending your life and doing everything they can to keep you alive, as opposed to maybe allowing natural causes to take you out in a more gentle way and then making you comfortable in the process. And presumably there's some quite serious economics that sit between those two trajectories, if you like.
1: Yes, but if you go back sort of a generation, two generations, lots of people were dying prematurely. They were dying in their 40s, they were dying in their 50s. And medical technology has discovered the way to intervene when that happens. So prevention is better, but treatment is better. And so a lot of that culture of medical intervention has been built up because people were dying early and then you could do something about it. We need a different conversation now, moving on to where most people are dying in their 70s, their 80s, their 90s. and As we say, so many people are getting to over 100.
3: Presumably, if you take the rational economic position on this, this starts to sound like a very hard, unpleasant, inhumane, non-civilised conversation. And yet, on the other end of it, we're probably making decisions that as a society, we simply, under the current tax system anyway, can't afford. I mean, how do you have this conversation?
1: Whether we can afford it or not is another question. We can come back to that. Mm. Um, But how do we have the decision? I think... Lots of people have had to deal with death, death of of their parents, the ageing of their parents and even increasingly death of our own peers. And when you talk to people, which is what we're doing at the moment, so many people will say it was a horrible way to die because she was so uncomfortable, she felt so undignified, she didn't want to be there. Um, So what we need to do is have a conversation about how to spend money to really improve well-being. And that's what economics is about. It's not just, we know how to save money, we just stop spending it. It's actually about how do we spend it to maximise social welfare, if I can use a bit of jargon. But how do we do it to make sure people come through the experience well? Mm -hmm. And the family, the close friends, have to come out of that, the other side of that death. currently do these two worlds kind of align so
2: on the one hand we know we have some substantial spending happening on healthcare that's kind of particularly concentrated around end-of-life care and yet on the other hand we know that individuals and their loved ones have certain values and preferences around what they would like in their final stages to what degree right now
1: are we getting an alignment in your view? I think it's very mixed, and I think it depends very much on what happens. What's a trigger event that sends an older person usually into hospital? Do they have an advanced care directive? Have they spoken with their um, next of kin about it? Does the family agree on what the patient wants, or are the family arguing um, so so that's how we do it and I think we need to have more conversations in a less emotional frame of mind so that people can explore this. Now with many other aspects of healthcare we can do that as Richard would have explained to you. We can put numbers on how people rate their quality of life and compare that with the dollars. So the dollars are spent to maximise the gains in quality of life. That's what the our pharmaceutical benefits scheme does. That's what our most of our medical services do. That's just an accepted part of what we do. And incidentally, this country was one of the leaders in the development and application of those techniques. But it's what we do to make decisions across the gamut of healthcare. care. And I think the challenge is how do we do that at end of life but do it without saying it's exactly the same If you ask a 30-year-old or if you ask a 90-year-old, what are the aspects that are important?
3: You're listening to Think Business Futures. To download this show, head to 2ser.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Think Business Futures. On this episode, we're looking at the end-of-life care process with distinguished Professor Jane Hall of the Centre for Health Economics at the UTS Business School. This is about the point in the show where we'd like to bring someone in who is working in this industry in question. In this case, someone who's working in palliative care. So Nicole, you were down in Canberra recently and you interviewed someone on this topic, is that right?
2: So when Jason and I were in Canberra, we went and spoke to someone from
0: Palliative Care Australia about what it's like to work directly with people in the final stages of their life. So my name's Kate Reed. I'm a nurse practitioner in palliative care, um, which I've been doing for the past nine years. I'm also the National Clinical Advisor for Palliative Care Australia. And so obviously you spend
2: a lot of time with people and their loved ones in the final
0: stages of their life. What's your role in that process? So as a nurse practitioner, that's fully within the scope of practice of a palliative care nurse practitioner to care for someone from referral um, up until the time that they die and also to provide some bereavement care to the family. So the involvement is um, can be very intense or it also can be quite consultative. So it really depends on the patient's and their family's needs. It's interesting you raise this, this issue around um, a patient's needs.
2: I'm really interested in understanding your perspective. Why do you think understanding
0: these preferences and choices are important? Well, I do think when patients will first come and see me, they often haven't considered anything around their end-of-life care or what their choices might be, usually because it's a crisis situation in as much as they have been told that this is what's happening now or they are quite acutely unwell. Um, so sometimes things aren't communicated very well at that point. So developing that therapeutic relationship with a patient and their family is essential to be able to find out and enable conversation in which someone can express what they want at, in end-of-life care. Uh, also, but from a palliative care perspective, it's really important that you provide very good symptom management and the supports around a person so they can think about it and families be very pressured at that point as well to try and fix what's going on and then there's time to relax to maybe discuss these issues. It would be a very ideal world that they discuss issues like that before they come and see someone such as myself. But the reality is it's usually taking place in the first consults with palliative care. Back on this kind of ideal case scenario, so what
2: is the benefit of having these discussions kind of well in advance of, say, an acute trauma or crisis? Like what, what are the benefits to both the patients and their families?
0: Well, I think any time that we're making any crisis-based decisions usually aren't in our best interests. It's a bit like the organ donation discussions. It's really important that we discuss those with our families before we need to donate organs. Uh, we do find that patients will come in and they have an idea of what they want from on their funeral. So they they've, people have had a conversation around what song they might want around their funeral or they might they'll know if they want to be cremated or buried, but they have no idea how they're going to get from being alive to that point death is normal we can all talk about religion we can talk about taxes we can talk about the things that we don't think are um, very good for around a rounded dinner table but everyone still shies away from dying and we're all going to do it so we need to really discuss what that looks like because what, what's important to me may be very much not important to you i want to circle back to the difficulty that people have about talking
2: about death and I'm interested in your your ideas about why is it that we struggle to talk about death?
0: I'm, I've well, I've been a nurse since my early twenties, um, and so having conversations around death has been something that it's never been too much of an issue for me and I have to say I've got well young to adolescent children now and they have a very healthy understanding of death because it's something that we talk about normally. I think people are naturally frightened to talk about death because it's just such a big unknown like what's going to happen and it's a really something that's hidden away uh in from society now it used to be part of a normal like years and years ago, centuries ago, it used to be part of a normal community to be involved in the death of a community member. I think that people are still, it's still so foreign to them and we've we've really moved away. I do, over the time I've been in palliative care, there does seem to be a better discussions going on in academic circles, in society, in the newspapers Blogs, those sorts of things that you can see, talk people talking about death. So I think it might be coming around a little bit better, and we're getting more open about it. I mean, the fact that oh, I'm here talking about it, you know, it just goes to show that there is certainly an, a conversation that's being had. So speaking
2: of that conversation. Now, for some people, that's probably the hardest thing is actually starting Mm -hmm. that conversation. So perhaps in your experience, how do you go about starting those sorts of conversations with the people that you work with?
0: I'll often find out, first of all, what they know, what they already know. So do a little bit of fact finding. Um, Sometimes people won't know much about their disease process at all. They may be just sent to me for what they understand to be um, pain management um, and don't have a really good understanding of the fact they have a life-limiting illness or they've heard it but they haven't really taken it in, which is a natural, absolute reaction. Um, So it's finding out what they already know and then talking to them about, okay, so this is where we are now. I want to help you live as well as you possibly can with your disease. We don't know how long you have necessarily, uh, but... What we're going to do is I'm going to be here to help you live with this better. So what does that mean to you? What does living well mean at this point in your life? And a lot of those first consultations are around reducing anxiety because the chances are that person's been thinking about it at three o'clock in the morning and just going, how do I, how do I talk about this? And they just need the space, the time and the care to provide, to start the conversation.
2: Thinking through the different things that people might find important uh, in terms of could be experiences, mm-hmm. it could be about plans for their funeral, um, I imagine there, there would be some sort of things that are important in terms of, from a medical point of view, what sort of things are the, I guess, topics or issues are important to people in those sorts of conversations and discussions?
0: Um, a lot of people will ask about, first of all, length of time around planning around how how long they might have. And prognostication is quite a difficult thing to do, which is trying to predict how long a patient's life might be. That can be quite difficult. But then also about where they want to be for their care can be different from where they would want to be for their death. And so what we call preferred place of care, preferred place of death. Um, The majority, I haven't heard too many people ever say to me, I would like to be in hospital to die. They want to be where they are comfortable with their families and surrounded by the things that are familiar to them. In a very unfamiliar situation where there can be quite a lot of chaos, uh, it does help to have a grounding like that. So what does it take for a community to be able to support someone to be able to die at home? There is death that doesn't require specialist palliative care. So when we talk about specialist palliative care and the role that I have is that was when there's symptoms or um, or there's um, existential issues or other distressing issues around it, uh, the dying process or the living with an, a life-limiting illness that need to be addressed. So then other palliative care that can happen out in the community without ever seeing a specialist palliative care physician or nurse practitioner Having community support, such as people to come in to help you with showers or the practical domestic help is really essential to keeping these people out of hospital where they don't need to be because there isn't anything the acute system can actually do other than provide those supports while they're dying. Mm -hmm.
3: So I must play my hand here. Uh, I've been through with my parents uh, an advanced medical care directive and actually worked through the mechanics of this. And I have to say it was incredibly liberating for both them and for us, uh, given that we have the responsibility for them over this next period of their life that in a relatively rational setting to be able to say, this is what I expect, Um, this is what I'm happy to have and and not. How do we perhaps make this discussion a more systematic or broader discussion across society so that we can have, you know, deal with these issues in a humane but rational way?
1: I mean, I think there is growing interest. So 20 years ago, we didn't see the, the authors like Atul Gawande talking about death, talking about different ways of death. And and I think that's a very important. That is a very very important start, but we just have to be able to face up to it. We have to have these sorts of conversations. I mean, on a personal note, my kids are fed up of hearing about what they should do if they find me in that situation because they think I've I was going to say because I've done it to death, but that's not quite the right phrasing, is it?
3: Boom. <laughs>
2: Okay, So for someone who hasn't been through this process, what what was the starting point for you, Dave?
3: Probably some of the health challenges that uh, parents have had on either side of our family. And it's a funny thing. My mother, who's incredibly rational, when we were young, she used to say to us, well, you know, when I get old and I'm, you know, no use anymore, and particularly if I lose my senses, you know, just stick me somewhere so care gets taken of me and get on with your life. But I guess when they started to have these health challenges uh, as they got older and, and starting to think about what care looks like, that's when we had the conversation. And also, to be fair, I guess both of them took the lead in having that discussion. I was probably a little bit uncomfortable mm. sort of talking about this issue because you don't want to face the fact that your parents are no longer going to be here at some point point in the not too distant future, or they're hopefully a little further away than I might have just suggested in case they're listening.
2: Were there any kind of resources that you went to to kind of guide that conversation?
3: Yeah, so we went to our uh, or solicitor to ensure that they got independent advice in relation to it, and then the mechanics of how to actually deal with this. You'll
1: also find in, in any state, if you go onto the Department of Health website and look up advanced care directives, you'll find information about how to start the conversation and, and what are some of the practical things. That you can do. An Advanced Care Directive is a written plan that sets out how you want to be treated under different circumstances. So it won't cover absolutely every possibility because it would be too long, but it says if I, you know, if I'm not conscious or if there is very little chance of, of recovering my normal function. Um, do I want antibiotics? Do I want intravenous feeding? Do I want more, more sort of intensive treatment? Um, so it sets out the main sorts of directions uh, around how you would want to be treated at the end of life. And I think the value of that is not just having one, although that's obviously valuable, it's also using it as a basis to have the conversation with the people around you. Now, one of the questions that's sitting in the
2: back of my mind as we're having this conversation is that I think it's really important that we start articulating our choices or hearing the choices of our loved ones about what they would like at the end of life and I just want to pick up on a point you made before one of the problems is a question can we actually afford this so once we have a sense of what people would like what their preferences are what their choices are do we have a sense that as a society that we can actually afford to be providing the level of care that people are expecting in their final stages of life
1: you know that's a difficult question, and it's a difficult question because co- what does it mean to say, can we afford it as a so- as a society? We're a rich society, um, and we spend more on healthcare every year, um, and it doesn't seem to have driven the economy into the ground so far. So my own view is that we will go on spending more on healthcare, and that yes, as a society, we can afford it. And I think the question though is. So if we put someone in an intensive care unit with 24-hour nursing doctors there the whole time, all sorts of technology, all sorts of expensive drugs being pumped into their system, that's expensive. If they would prefer to be in a calm room with their family around them, that's a different way of spending money. And and if that's better for them, we need to move the money from the expensive end into the supportive end, not because it's cheaper, because it's a better way of spending the money. So in one sense, being being able to
2: articulate our choices better and be able to match those choices with resources. We're not just kind of spending the money where it's perhaps not being actually valued by the people who yes, are receiving yes. it. Yes.
1: And and that's something as a social decision about how do you plan services? How do you how do you configure them so that they keep people at home longer if that's what they want? Or they give people a different experience but an institution that's got more hospital-like support. You know we've had a we've had a complete revolution in how people give birth from a very medicalised interventionist model to one where the mother is much more in charge the family can be there and still most births happen in hospital but the atmosphere around them has completely changed. I believe we could do the same for death.
3: If we are going to outsource, for want of a better term, the end-of-life process for our age, then presumably this has significant policy and tax and resource allocation-related decisions and a much broader societal conversation that needs to occur. Do you have any observations on that?
1: Yeah, it's all about how much we want to spend on healthcare. I think often, you know, particularly you see those Victorian melodramas where people just drift off to sleep having said goodbye to everybody in their great big four-poster bed with everybody around them. Death isn't very often like that. It's often hard and it's often messy. And so I think as a rich society, we are able to say, how do we best deal with this between a a mixture of, of outsourcing and insourcing? and use the money that we're putting into healthcare to support what's happening. Let's give people what they want. That brings us to the
2: close of this episode of Think Business Futures. Think Business Futures is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. This podcast is made by the UTS Business School with the support of 2SER 107.3. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to the 2SER website, 2 com slash ThinkBusinessFutures. You can also search for us in your favourite podcasting app.
3: Our executive producer is Jason Leclier. Thanks to Professor Jane Hall from the Centre for Health Economics Research and Evaluation. Till next time.